Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 37 and we have Peter Todd joining the show. Peter is a vastly experienced bookmaker and punter dating back to the start of the 1970s. Peter takes us through his style of bookmaking and almost a decade of betting professionally. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Peter Todd. Today I'm joined by Peter Todd. Peter, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, lovely, Jake. I'm pleased to talk to you. So, Peter, take us through your background and your early days in in racing and betting. I've been in betting for a long time. I think I started as a bookmaker's clerk way back in 71, my first year out of school. My father had been a bookmaker, so I I took a job with him, generally just a groundsman and then a penciller. And slowly but surely, without even knowing that I was going to go into the game myself, uh, once I got to the end of my university degree, I started uh, a, a bookmaking uh, business, uh, shared it with my cousin who uh, was a trackman, who I also worked for my father as a penciler. Uh, I got a lot of in, uh, influence from him and that set me along and I think I overall I was a bookmaker for 20 years, 1977 to 1997 when I'd just about had enough. So Peter, what's a penciler? I have no idea. I can probably guess a few things, but take us through what a day in the life of a penciler was back in the, the 70s. Yeah, one of the best jobs I've ever had, I'd say. For me, it was a perfect job. It, it, you recorded all of the bets. If somebody came in and had uh, $10 on a, on a runner at 5 to 1, you would record $50 to 10. You would then record the ticket number, which might be ticket 798, and then you would record cumulative totals for the hold, which in this case is 10, and a cumulative total for the taker, which in this case would be 60. And then you would run that down for every every bet for every runner and also for every runner in every race. A very busy job, very mathematical. So what about at university? What were you studying? Was it helpful as a penciler uh, with some of the stuff you were sort of learning and going through at university? Or did you just have to, you know, practice and get better at Because these days, you know, mathematics by hand like that is just it did help not something we need to do anymore not need to you don't need to do it anymore no look i was studying a science degree and uh, my maths uh, my major was pure mathematics so it did fit it was perfect so i studied pure mathematics i studied um statistical mathematics or applied mathematics pretty much everything to, to finish that degree what was it like back at the track in the 70s? I, I can imagine there were some uh, interesting characters getting around. Take us through a day at the track or, or, or a Saturday at you know one of the major tracks or a major race day. Well, it was just a hub of activity. You know, All of the betting took place at the track. All of the money came back to the track. And, 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 and the characters, of course, they were there. They'd been there in the past and they were still coming to the track at that time. Even a midweek crowd was you know around about the 10,000. It was part of our culture. It was part of the racing culture in, in Australia. 
it was very busy and there were a lot of bookmakers there too. You know, when I first started bookmaking, I think I was at uh, Wentworth Park Greyhounds. I think I started in the, the what was called the ledger, which was sort of like the other side of the track. If you can imagine, there's the home straight and that's where most of the crowd gathers and most of the bookmakers gather. But on the other side of the track, the back straight, they still had like 15 or 20 bookmakers and a crowd going over to, you know, to bet there as well. Uh, the races, that, that were the dogs. So how did you learn your craft? I, I learned my craft a little bit by, from, the, from the Greyhound Racing. Okay. I can remember my very first meeting. The Greyhound Racing was great. They raced every 20 minutes and there was only eight runners. Uh, and, you know, quickly I uh, developed the idea that, you know, if the demand was strong enough and I was quick enough, then somehow I could sort of proportionately lay each of the runners and so that I would have, you know, fairly limited risk at the end of each race. So you didn't really require large capital to keep you afloat. And that was, the, that was the aim of the game. Bookmaking, that's the art of bookmaking, is to lay each runner in proportion so that if you do it perfectly, that you won't have a liability once, once the runners go to the post. How often did that play out as you, you'd hoped? Uh, less and less over time. But initially, it was, you know, it was quite possible. Um, and, of course, the, the bigger you got, the more money that you took, the harder it was to do that. But there were times, yeah, certainly m- many times over that 20 years where I was able to achieve that. That was, that was my style of bookmaker. That, you know, I wasn't really a gambling bookmaker, which I think in, in time everybody was forced to become a gambling bookmaker because of the lack of demand for, um, for many runners. The demand eventually was concentrated on the, the better chances. So that sort of money for the lesser chances dried up. Dried up. So who were some of the people that you sort of looked up to back then or you learned from or, or helped sort of learn your craft? Well, I certainly, you know, I learned from my father without even knowing it. It was one of those relationships where I don't think he ever gave me any advice, but he, he didn't stop me from sort of exploring and, and going about and, and finding my own way. I certainly, uh, other people I learned from, I mentioned my cousin, who I initially started my first bookmaking enterprise with, and he was a trackman. And uh, you're going down to the track in the morning and, and, and clocking the horses in that. I, I didn't go often, but occasionally I went down with him. I, I learned something of what you know might, might be my first uh, input into sort of form analysis. And over time, once I did become a bookmaker, I started to look more at form analysis and... I think the the method, one of the methods going here was, I don't know if you've heard of the Don Scott method, but it was like he was a very popular early ratings guru, and I, I sort of picked up on that, and I, I took what I could and, and ran there. So were there people who weren't doing the form and just were trying to have a balanced book, or was everyone picking up on Don Scott and those type of methods or reading about the Kelly criterion and implementing some of those things? No, there were initially there were bookmakers who were, who were and, and I think still to some extent, there were there were the traditional bookmakers who uh, tried, as I spoke earlier about that attempt to lay all of the runners with minimal risk. Um, they dried up more quickly than the the gamblers, and then there was like the more the, the bigger style bookmaker who would try to take most of their money on the favourite runner and the the second most of their money on the second favourite runner, and so on and probably just not even bother about laying, uh, you know, the back half of the field, the longer shots. And they were, they were gamblers. Um, 
there were, there were different styles, and I think in time they they, were, they survived more. But it did come down to capital, of course. It came down to how well capitalised you were, whether you survived or not, or whether you could could go on. Tell me a little bit about you when you used to do the form and you used to spend some time back in the days as a penciler or after that. What what were some of the things you were looking at back then and or things that you placed importance on? Well, it's sort of like a ratings analysis. I think I was looking at, you know, the, the, the substance of it is uh, each past performance can be rated numerically and so that you then get into some analysis based upon their past performances and what you think might be their, their performance for this, you know, current race. So I'd spend some time you know, developing those differences. Obviously, you look at um, what, for me, first factor, well, class, you know, class, class will, will triumph with a horse that is fit and, and, and with a horse that will get the right run. It, it should triumph. That's key one. Uh, fitness is is key too. I suppose you you know it's a class killer. I think if you know if you you can be the best horse, but if you're not fit enough, then you probably can't win. Um, I, I, you know I'm a big I'm a big believer in the in trainers in 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 the worth of a trainer. I think that I always consider the the top trainers as being and and, and that sort of goes hand in hand then with the top jockeys. And have a lot of those principles sort of stayed true or are the fundamentals the same from your time in the 70s to, you know, all through up until today, do you think? There's been a shift. I think those things are still fundamentally true for any, for me, you know, looking at any horse race today. There's been a shift now, I think, the, the professional punter of today is very, very savvy about what you might call a track bias or a, a pace bias. That's come more and more into into play now that we see. Um, once we got to the point where races were televised regularly, I think everyone, even the general public, suddenly became aware that certain tracks with certain rail positions had certain biases, and and of course um, the 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 uh, the pace of the races is another factor. There's a, there's an old adage that the pace will decide the race, and I think that's always been true. But um, it's picked up a lot more on. I think you'll find that a lot of the jockeys are, are, are very savvy now about, you know, not just where their horse may be in the run, but where other horses may be as well. So I think this has become a very key factor in determining, you know, choice for winners. Rethink the way you see sport. Every action or play can be represented by a series of numbers. When you analyse this data, patterns begin to emerge. If you follow these patterns and develop systems, you can play the game within the game. Betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So, what about punters back then? What, what would you learn from them? I'm sure there were some big egos, big characters and big money flying around. Tell us about some of the the things you would pick up on from those punters and were you playing each individual punter separately or were you just worried about balancing your book? I think primarily I was more worried about the latter, balancing the book, because I wasn't really capitalised to sort of play the big punters. So I was trying to sort of play, play one against the other. But you did become aware that certain punters were associated with certain stables, of course, and that when they bet that that was a, like a, a good sign that the horse was, was on today. And you, you sort of would, would try and cut back certain punters. You'd say, no, that uh, some punters, and then some punters you would play. You'd have some punters you'd say, well, it doesn't really matter what this punter backs. I, you know, I'm pretty confident that regardless of size that I will finish in front of him over time. 
So there, there, there's always been a variety of punters. That, uh, that stable information was important. Like for a long time there, when I was uh, leading the ring in terms of putting the prices up in the race to race, so I'd done my form and I was, you know, I had a set of market prices that I was prepared to go to the market with. And really all I had in front of me then was the, um, you know, I said the live totes or the early totes, tote, the totalisator betting. Um, and, and the punters would gather around me waiting for that price, those prices to start. And I did quite a lot of business in that first uh, two or three minutes even whilst I was putting those prices up. And I'd learned from that. And, you know, naturally that would reshape my thoughts on the race. And then I'd probably reshape my own prices based upon what I uh, discovered there. So were you always first to go up on the board with prices? Not always, no. It was somebody else's role initially, but I did, you know, at some point I decided that that would be my role. Uh, over time, it became unprofitable to do that. In time, I became more of a punting bookmaker. I, became, I, I decided on that there was, you know, I had to, had to play both sides. And so once I became a punting bookmaker, which meant that I wanted to bet with my opposition, there was no point in me going up first. I needed for them to go up first and, and, and make a, uh, give me an overlay, if you like. So there's no point in me having something at three to one and putting up, you know, three to one when, when they might put up five or six to one and I'd be happy to take that price off them. So you said you would lose over time going up first. Is that just because the market is probably better than one bookmaker's opinion, even if yours was a damn good opinion? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You can sort of only, um, you know, the, the, the early punters, you know, there are some losing early punters, but a lot of them did quite well out of it, of course, yeah. And, but it was more or less, the, the losing, yeah, it declined. You know, it declined what, what I could gain from that over time. But the whole business had declined by that time. General turnover, I think at my peak, uh, 1989 maybe, my annual turnover was 30 million. By 1997, when I'd finished, my turn annual turnover was down to 7 million. Wow. So there's the difference. And what were the main factors for that? Oh, there's a lot of factors there, Jake. One of the factors, of course, was the, or the biggest factor was, I'd, one, I'll tell you one factor, was they brought in a, what was called a cash transaction report where any bet that was liable for a payout of up to $10,000 had to be reported to the authorities. Now, that made a difference. Now, when I say that, it made a difference because that'll tell you that prior to that time, there had been what you might call black money on the race course, and that dried up. Okay. That money, I think that money went to the casino. That coincided with the, the opening of the uh, Sydney Casino. So we didn't see that. Another factor and the biggest factor of all was the uh, saturation live coverage of the races in the TABs and in the pubs and clubs. So that it was now no longer necessary to go to the races to see the races live. I think that was, that was, the, that was the telling factor. And so the crowds just dwindled and dwindled. And when they did dwindle, there was a, a, you know, obviously the punters had left the racetrack with the casual punters. Um, and other punters that left the racetrack were those that went broke. And the ones that stayed, the ones that stayed were the ones that sort of needed to shop, you know? Yeah. That was the nature of their business. So, you know, the, the, the other great adage is you must shop at the top to win. And that was the name of their game. Okay. You mentioned a little bit about sort of market intelligence. What value would you place on looking around at all the other boards, seeing where the money's sort of going, seeing where the bets are coming and going throughout the ring? 
Take us through that and I guess your mindset and how you thought about what the market was saying. Well, in any marketplace, I think everyone just shifts. They align themselves with the the sort of like you might call the median price or an average price of all the players. So the general consensus was that people outside of the main bookmakers observed the, the leading bookmakers and took that as the mark and then they moved their prices close to maybe a little bit better, maybe a little bit under those players and everybody did the same thing. So the hardest thing, of course, was to be one of those leading bookmakers because eventually you found yourself, your price was being undercut by your opposition and this is how your your business dries up overall. The, the people that are trying to make their mark must, you know, must um, undercut the leading bookmakers to do that. So do you think there's more than one way to win for the punters? I mean, we've, I've talked to a number of different people about it and they've all got sort of different strategies and approaches on the punting side. Do you think that it's about getting value and, and being smart with your bankroll over time or do you see it as a little bit different? No, I think that's a must. You know, I think value is key. You know, I think that it's sort of, it, it, to some extent, it's not really what you back, it's what price you take. But I should hedge that a little. I think there in, in most races, in most races, there are some horses that can't possibly win. I think that's a given. But, um, in, you know, and then, then in saying that, there, there, are, there are, you know, there are generally more than one chance in a race. So I think today's professional punter is certainly backing more than one runner in a race. They're certainly looking for value and they're looking for the movement, the market movement to allow them. You know, their, their first task might be to back horse A and then horse A will shorten and naturally the market will adjust so that the other runners will, will move out. Then they'll back horse B when it gets to what they think is a maximum price or a value price. And then it will shorten and then again there'll be another pushback against the rest of the runners. And then let's say then they'll finally back horse C once again, at the the maximum or the top price, uh, that, that's 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 a, a great strategy, of course. Um, another way to win, of course, is with the uh, the advent of Betfair, the existence of Betfair. You you can now lay horses. You you can now become somebody that takes a stance against a runner, and and that also allows you to become a trader, something that didn't exist in the past. You can you can now um, play a game by recognizing that there's money to be made only by um, determining which horses shorten in the market. You buy at the top, you sell at the bottom and you've already made money. Uh, Virtually no risk. So do you think that's easy or that strategy of backing horse A, B and C, hopefully at the top of the market, is easier now in this day and age? Or do you think back at the track it was easier for those punters who were, I guess, shrewd enough at that time to be executing that strategy? I think it may have been easier at the track because of the, 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 the nature of the betting boards. There was a way that you could observe. And, you know, when certainly when I was um, had, I, I did, did play a professional punter there for about eight years after my bookmaking, and I did exactly that. I bet at the track. I had an account with every bookmaker, and I, I, did, I observed, you know, when I thought that a horse may shorten. And, you know, generally you were right, and, and you, you moved very quickly away from the leading bookmakers into to, to the sort of the minor bookmakers and took advantage of that and and that did, did play out quite well these days to play the market you'd have to on track i don't know i haven't even stepped foot on a track for nearly 10 years um, i'm thinking if you've got um if you're betting 
Um, of course, if you're betting online with corporate bookmakers, I think you can probably do something similar because you can have multiple accounts, but they all map each other fairly closely. Um, so to be aware when that move when that move may begin may be difficult. I haven't really tried it, but I think it's quite possible. So do you remember when Betfair first came into play and, and what impact that had and how that sort of transition happened to being able to trade, being able to, to back and lay and take positions? Yeah, well, the first thing that everyone, the, the first observation about Betfair was that it suddenly was a 100% market that was taking a 5% commission. So effectively, it was a 105% market. And the market had been used to operating at 120 to 100, you know, 100 and even even the city market, which has always been very competitive, you know, because of the nature of this sort of business, it is competitive. You can see it's a cash, it was basically a cash business. It's a money business, so it, it is very very competitive, low margins. But 105 was a shock. I, I certainly remember that, and um, I think I know there was that that became an opportunity. There, I knew some people fairly casually that were sort of determined that they could be a bookmaker. They could actually suddenly lay a favourite now. They've never been able to lay one in their life. Um, but they, I think they burnt their fingers there because it got very competitive to lay favourites. Turned, turned out to be to their disadvantage because the prices they were laying them at were, you know, right at the margin, always. So was it an advantage for a bookmaker such as yourself or anyone else who had spent time actually laying horses and understanding what it meant to be taking on a favourite and understanding some of those concepts or, you know, take us through that and, and who had an advantage, if anyone, in those early stages? The, when the early stages of Betfair. So I think it's it, it's a similar story. Though naturally, the people with the advantage are going to the pe the people with the knowledge. That'll, that will always be the case. So they, they will always determine the way the market moves on Betfair. Like Betfair can be, um, I suppose, what somewhat manipulated in terms of you know, placing orders for very small volume bets at longer prices, or and 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 you can cause a market drift that's unrealistic. Yeah, and I, I think the smart players will do things like that. So you know, I think it's it's not 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 as simple as it may seem to just walk in there, and 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 take advantage of a of what seems to be like close to a hundred percent marketplace. But um, you know, it's, interesting, interesting. It is interesting, yeah. What about the value of Betfair from a market intelligence perspective? How much of an eye did you keep on Betfair at the beginning and how has that sort of transitioned over the, the course of Betfair? Well, sort of Betfair gets to the point, I think, almost on anything where you'd say that that's pretty much a true market. I think, you know, when you're doing the form, when you're pricing a race, like back, back in my early days or at any time in my career pricing, I was in search of the starting price because that it was recognised at any point that if you could come up with the starting price then you'd come up with something like the true odds because you've, you've worked out the, the supply, the demand, and how the market force will drive it, and you're on. And, and with Betfair and, and betting, you know, even in small volumes, with, you know, because it's, a, it's full of, you know, uh, sellers and backers all the time, you, you're getting this dynamic working, even in small volumes. And, and, and with the shuffle, it, it, it determines, gets very close to where the true odds are. And today, I'm astonished at how far the, 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 the sellers will go to lay a horse, to lay a horse, that um, appears to be unsuited in in in, in say the, the the race that is um, coming up because of circumstances to do with uh, conditions on the day, to do with the bias or the pace of a race. 
they 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 amaze me how you know how much how how long they will go to um, sell that horse, but they're often right. I want to talk a little bit about favourites. Have you noticed much change in people's willingness to back favourites? Say in the the seventies and eighties, let's say, were they very rarely under even money? And now you see, like you know, obviously black caviar and winks are a little different, but some of those yes. horses you see are quite often dollar sixty, and they might you know not necessarily look like a typical dollar sixty chance. Have you noticed sort of a shift in that over over the years? No, I think that there's a shift away. I think the favourites are just. I think they're sort of trending much, pretty much at what they were, you know, because that that, that was the, that was the whole of the business. You didn't really have a business unless you sort of had a turnover, and and you didn't really get the turnover unless you did lay favourites. So bookmakers have been laying favourites, you know, well before Betfair, and and even now, like Betfair will push those favourites to the max, and the bookmakers today, because everybody can trade and be aware of Betfair. They're sort of forced to push there as well. I tend to think that favourites are um, as long today as they as they were in the past, maybe longer. Okay. Maybe longer. So um, I tend to think that that sort of typical dollar eighty chance of yesteryear is sort of pushing towards two dollars today. Interesting. Interesting. So you mentioned you're a pro punter for a number of years. Yeah, I tried that. How did that go? It was good and bad. It was good and good and bad, but it's sort of the, the overall. Um, I, I think that um, eventually it, it got it got the better of me. Eventually, um, I didn't sort of adjust enough to sort of uh, I hadn't really adjusted to, sufficiently to the Betfair. You, there was you, you weren't we weren't really able to use Betfair at that time. Betfair wasn't you it wasn't um, while I was going to the track. You couldn't access Betfair. It didn't come into play until after I'd finished, until after I'd left the race course altogether. Okay, so what were the biggest adjustments you had to make from a bookmaking mindset to a professional betting mindset i hadn't really changed a lot because i'd already been doing my markets and i was already betting off my market so i had a I had a, a line you know i had a line for every runner so i was a bit of a warts and all punter so i thought okay here's my market and I'll, I'll back i'll back whatever comes my way and so i was in that business of backing you know so i was at the track always at the track trying to get the top odds so i thought i can't win this unless i get i, I get the top odds it's not just a matter of being right picking the winners it's now a matter of doing that, and that that worked, that worked all right. That was okay. Um, and I, to say that it um, eventually sort of failed me because I, I sort of set it up as to my only means of income. Yeah. And eventually, it, it didn't sustain what I needed. You know, to to, to you know for like with family and, and lifestyle. So, what were some of the challenges that you challenges that you encountered that you might have? Uh, undersold or underplayed a little bit that sort of came to fruition when you were professional punting was it spending way more time was it discipline was it you know money management bet sizing what are some of the things that um that you found most difficult i think um probably the, the, the understanding the, the 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 idea that some of the horses weren't really fancied because once you've locked yourself into taking a price a certain runner you you sort of you, you sort of fix my idea was well if i'm going to take um, five dollars about a certain runner. I don't necessarily, uh, you know, I'll take better, of course, and I'll, I'll play the game for as long as I can to get that better price. Um, but some of the runners, you know, you, you sort of maybe you'd, in hindsight, I thought they just weren't fancied. You know, I was backing. I think I was backing, getting on too many runners that weren't being fancied in the market. So I was probably underselling the value of that information that I had when I was a bookmaker that I wasn't, you know, gaining anymore when I'd been a bookmaker and I saw how the, the, the other people played. 
I probably gained from that and I wasn't gaining that information anymore. So how much time were you spending on sort of bankroll preservation and some of the, the money management or thinking about Kelly and bet sizing? Were you actively sort of engaged in evaluating that to making sure that um, that your bank was always in play or was it more about the, the form and the betting and taking the right prices and letting that take care of itself? Yeah, more so that. I don't think that I ever sort of, you know, I don't think there was a point where I, I said, well, here's, here's a point where I need to cut back. I need to cut back and, and ride this losing run. I think I just kept, I just pushed on to a large extent and I didn't really, you know, I had a, a sort of a fixed numbers in my head that I played to. And I think that with the losing run, I don't know if I did pull back uh, quick enough. I don't know if I ever did pull back from it, actually. I, I can't really quite remember that, but I think I don't think I, I may not have done that. Yeah, that's that's uh, so you, you you sort of that method, the Kelly method you mentioned there. I'm not quite familiar with what you're saying there. I, I got a vague understanding of that. Is that like a, a staking method? Yeah, that yeah. you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Where you where you your stake rises and falls with your bank. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Percentage of your bank, or yep. some people do quarter Kelly yep. and half Kelly and things like that. Um, yeah, I thought that's. On... I thought that's. I thought that's what you meant. Yeah. Yeah. That. That. Yeah. I understand that. Now I think I. Th- <laughs> I think I. Ser- I needed to have a certain turnover. As I said, to have a fixed percentage, to make a fixed percentage, you know, to to, to sustain a lifestyle, which you know, I needed to to sort of continue at that level. Yeah, which if I'd have pulled back, I would have had to have sort of done something else anyway. I would have had to have sort of cut my time between form and, and and found something else. So, what advice do you have for a twenty-year-old who's thinking about being a pro punter and they've accumulated a little bit of a bank? What are some of the things that you learnt looking back that you would give as perhaps advice on what to do or even what not to do? What to do? I'd never say what not to do because then you won't be able to learn from your mistakes. Uh, What to do is to, yeah, have a bit of a bank and then spread that bank. I'd I'd say that your best way of betting is to be at home with a laptop or a computer or whatever you can do and spread that, that money around into different accounts so that you're able to bet with bookmaker A or bookmaker B or C and then that way you sort of you're a much better chance to to shop at the top again. Uh, definitely open up a Betfair account, have one of those, and then think about arbing, arbitraging. You know, think about um, the, the value of if you do make a bet, and and the price does drop, then think about you know laying it off for for a small profit. Um, you can't you can't lose money doing that. Uh, but you know, then then to think about the staking, of course, you must think about some some uh, some sensible staking. You can't let it get out of hand. So it's got to be like a, a bit of a labour of love, and I'm sure it can be done. But that little, I guess, with the, which is with a 20 year old, they won't have much of an understanding of the of the of the horses, and you know, they'll take a while to learn the nuances of our, um, trainers, jockeys, race tracks, biases. There's there's a lot of things that you know maybe they should specialise in a certain area and get to know that. Sort of, horse pool or that trainer pool and that jockey pool, pick something that's sort of a little bit remote and and then get to understand the race tracks that those horses are racing at and the different rail positions. And then finally, I think, you come to understand how the races are going to be run. Is it going to be run quickly, which will, you know, advantage those horses from behind, or is it going to be run slowly and advantage those horses in you know, on the pace? So there's a lot there, but I think they're, they're, they're the critical factors. 
So what about 2018? What does a race day entail for you and, and what preparation goes into being prepared for attacking a eight race card in, you know, any city around Australia? Yeah, I'm just pricing today. Like I'm not doing any betting at the moment. I'm, I'm working at the, um, working for a company in Sydney, Tabcorp, and I'm pricing races for them. So there's no stress in, in, in terms of uh, uh, betting at the moment. Um, so, the, But the process is still the same for me. This process is still the same. It's to sort the runners out and, and, and go through all of those little indicators that sort of I've alluded to on the way um, and, and then sort the runners out into sort of like um, in, into blocks, if you like, determine, in a, in a crude sense, you might say this horse has got a 30% chance or this one might have a 20% chance, this one might have a, a 5% chance and then sort of make that fit, make that fit 100, make, make all of them fit into 100 and then sort of shave all those prices and, and say, well, and, let, and then, let, then let the market determine the truth. So do you prefer doing that in 2018 or, or another way, is it easier for you doing that in 2018 as it was in the, the 70s? It, it's, it's quite the same, you know, it's quite the same. It doesn't have the glamour that it had in the 70s when I was on the racetrack at the, you know, at the centre of the ring and, and, and it doesn't have the buzz, it doesn't have the adrenaline charge, of course. Um, but the process of, um, of, of seeing you know, the, the, the worth of your work and whether you've been successful and the, um, you know, the editing what you've done in, in hindsight and going over and, and seeing where you've been, uh, where you've erred is still the same for me. It's still quite the same. I, I come at it from a, a very purist point of view, a, pure, a very academic point of view these days. And you'll keep doing it year on year, do you think? Yeah, I'll do it for as long as I can, Jake. I, I do love it. It's sort of it's in my blood. I didn't realise it was in my blood so much, you know. But having a father who was a bookmaker, and a very good bookmaker too, it's it seeped it seeped through. And having that mathematical interest, but um, it, it all just suddenly came together one day, and there I was, just putting the two, you know, my two loves together. You see the numbers. You want more control. On the Betfair Exchange, you can back, lay, trade, and set your own odds. So join the world's largest peer-to-peer -peer betting platform. Get into the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So I have to ask, who are some of your favourite horses over the years, or one of the you know the best couple of horses you've seen? Take us through some of your uh, opinions on those topics. Well, the standard, you know, the, the horse, the, the horse that I'll say was my favourite horse and best horse was Kingston Town. Um, in, in my era, in those days, um, I, I, that's true. And then coming along now, uh, I did. I never saw Black Caviar, but certainly Winx has joined Kingston Town there. Um, there are other horses when I was younger that I, you know, I sort of loved, you know, because I having, had a lot of luck with them. Gunsin was always one that comes to mind. I always had a great affinity with him, the, the Gundawindi Grey. Um, going on these days, Winx is, you know, without a doubt, without a doubt, as good as the, as good as we've seen. Black caviar, yeah, true. The same story, but um, I, did, I, did, I didn't see a race. Never, uh, what else was a great sprinter? I did, yeah, it's hard to say. I never saw some of the. Um, I never saw some some of the great, all of the great horses you can you can think of. That you know the the, the, the great Cox Plate winners, of course. That's the big one. Oh, of course, he's a beauty. Superimposed like a horse that won two Doncasters and two two Epsoms um, consecutively. That that's um, he was um, an amazing animal. 
So I asked before about some advice for a young punter. I, I may as well ask as well, what about as a bookie? I know not a lot of people are charging in to be bookies these days, but do you have any similar advice for bookmakers or is it uh, a dying breed these days? Well, it's a, you, 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 can't, you, you can't win with our customers. Um, yeah, it is a dying breed, Jake. Uh, I can't see that you can sort of be a full-time bookmaker today and um, make a lot of money. I, I, you may have a client or you may have two clients that are sort of can sustain your business, um, but that's very difficult. Uh, you won't beat the professional punters, so that your only days when you may make some money are sort of the bigger days, and they're, they're very, very few big days in, in Sydney. More in Melbourne, but very, in Sydney, you know, there'd be a handful of big days at the races, maybe 10 at most. You can't make a living out of that. So... I think if you wanted to be a bookmaker, you could set yourself up as a bookmaker on Betfair. You could become a player there, and you could become a you know a bookmaker through Betfair. You could enter your prices, and you could lay the runners when they when they, when they were there. Yeah, at, you know, minimal expense. That's a possibility. That's that's what I'd advise them to do. Yeah. Yeah, things have certainly changed. It's changed. Yeah. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate uh, your insights and, and some of the tips out uh, and advice. For those out there, so um, much appreciated. Pleasure, Jake. Lovely talking to you. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly.